Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, the show on Racing UK, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. My first guest uh, this week has been one of the voices of the sport for the last, well, dare I say it, Cornelius Lysit, nearly three decades. Uh, yeah. Morning and welcome. Morning, morning. Extra hour in bed. Always the best day of the year to do anything early on a Sunday morning. Absolutely. I'm delighted that you're here because I, I remember asking you about a year ago and you said I can't possibly come in on a Sunday uh, well, because I have Desert Island. It's the Archers. And the Archers. But thank goodness for the BBC iPlayer radio. Get corporate good and early. Very good. And so I will be able to listen to the Archers omnibus. Uh, when 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 I'm allowed to finally released from the the studio later on. So when did you and the BBC become a become an item? Uh, in nineteen in nineteen ninety, uh, Peter Bromley was the BBC's racing correspondent, and uh, they had previously done Wogan's Winner on Radio mm. Two on a on a every morning, and he did a little um, blurb that was uh, written by Tony Fairburn. Uh, then of the Racing Information Bureau. And then that stopped, I think, because Wogan stopped uh, on Radio 2. And then uh, there was going to be this uh, this sort of uh, sport and children's programme new network called Radio 5. Mm. And they thought, well, that's one thing that we can um, stick in there. So Peter Bromley was asked uh, who he could put up with uh, uh, as uh, as a sort of uh, sidekick who would, who would do early morning racing previews on Radio 5. And uh, we'd worked together at Race Call, run by the aforementioned Tony Fairburn. And uh, so I was having a terrible day at Race Call. Everything was going wrong. It was r- very, very hot, I remember. And somebody kept ringing up and putting the phone down. <laughs> and the phone rang again. And I picked it up. And I can't tell you on a family show <laughs> what I said. And the voice at the other end said, this is Mike Lewis, director of sport at BBC Radio. Um, is that Cornelius? I said, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely, absolutely. And he said, well, you've been recommended by Bromley. Uh, would you like to come and see me? Um, and uh, we have joked about the fact that uh, on that particular occasion, my language was less than um, less than savoury a few times uh, since. What was Peter Bromley like? Because uh, Peter O'Sullivan clearly was a household name. Everybody mm. knew him. But at the time, Bromley's voice on BBC Radio was... Nearly, nearly as well known, yeah. a formidable uh, figure. Oh, he was a he was a formidable. He was quite frightening. Um, but actually, when 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 you got through the bluster, he wasn't frightening at all. He was absolutely de- uh, delightful. Uh, but he could thunder. He didn't uh, <clears throat> he didn't necessarily speak or shout or whatever. He thundered uh, when things weren't going right. And there is a famous story which uh, uh, comes from York. Uh, when he walked into our production room at York and he handed me the... F- they picked up the phone off the desk before mobile phones. He handed me the phone, handed me the receiver and said, dial this number, 01904. And I said, but, but 
Peter, we're, we're in York. Why, why are we ringing your York number? We're ringing the clerk of the course, he said. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, it's an absolute disgrace. There is no loo paper in the gents uh, of, the, uh, of the loos in the main grandstand. And I've had to use the greyhound section of the racing post. Uh, and uh, so he could thunder, but heart of gold. And he had that fantastic voice, mm. like John Hunt, who does uh, commentary on BBC Radio now, is just when you think you can't go to another level to describe some great occasion, you can go to that, or they can go to that next level. And uh, Bromley had that wonderful voice. And Hunty has that wonderful voice for racing and indeed for, for swimming as well. And I, th I think you could argue racing commentary uh, and a sense of occasion mm. at racing is hugely difficult. But when it comes to swimming, when it's all going to last, yeah. you know, less than the time it takes these horses to run half a furlong, uh, it's, it's even harder. So when you started at the BBC, did you think, I found my niche. I'm going to be here for 28 years. 28 plus, years. Plus or ever or whatever. Yeah. I think I remember being asked to write an essay by Mr. Graham Campbell uh, when I was at school in an English lesson, Angus Graham Campbell. He said, write an essay. We were all told to write an essay, what we wanted to be doing in middle age. Uh, and I suspect, I saw him sort of three or four years ago and uh, said to him, I, I have a feeling that if you found that essay, I would be describing almost to the, to the letter what I'm doing. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very fortunate uh, thing. I always wanted to do something to do with journalism and then something to do with racing. And, and here I am. The thing that strikes me about you, particularly having talked about this over the years, is your love for the medium, your absolute passion for radio, for radio specifically, yeah. Yeah. more than well, anything else. Great, it is. It, it's so personal, isn't it? If you're in your car, it's you and um, the Archers, uh, or it's you and, and Kirsty when she was on Desert Island mm. Discs, or it's it's you and Nicholas Parsons in just a minute, and better mention some Five Live uh, <laughs> uh, presenters, you and Nicky Campbell, and uh, and uh, you and Mark Pugach and the rest of the team. Uh, so it's so personal, and it's not just in your car, it's in your bathroom, it's in your kitchen, it's in your bedroom, and people don't gather around the radio like they used to, clearly, because the television exists. But uh, that makes it even more personal in a way. So I, I have in my house, I would have one, two, three, three radios on mm -hmm. all the time, not necessarily on the same, um, same network. Um, I just love it. Absolutely. And the dramas, you know, a car journey. Going back to plugging the BBC iPlayer radio app on, on your <laughs> you're phone. You're doing well with it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Jonathan Wall, controller of Five Live. Uh, I hope you're watching. Uh, but uh, you, can, you can find any programme for a month. And if you're on a long journey, mm. you can download. I, the other day, I had to drive from Ascot, uh, from Kempton, after Enable One at Kempton, to somewhere near York. And uh, Brideshead Revisited was on in three episodes on Radio 4 Extra. Well, the journey was over practically before it started. <laughs> I, I'm, I confess to doing the same thing with Desert Island Discs. Oh, right. even, I even go back to the old Roy Plumley ones. Have you been convinced by the new presenter? Are you convinced yet? Lauren the Laverne. I've only yeah. heard her do one. I heard yeah. her do Tom Daly the other day. Yeah, she <clears throat> incredibly, incredibly big shoes to fill. Yeah, I met <clears throat> highlights of my summer. You know, people will be talking about the highlights of the year soon. But the highlights of my summer was being introduced to, uh, to Kirsty, who was presenting Desert mm. Island Discs until she's, she's not very well at the moment. Hopefully she's coming back. And she presented a trophy at Royal Ascot. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the directors of Ascot's wife is a, a great friend of mine. She said, do you know Kirsty? And, uh, were, oh, were you a bit starstruck? Well, well a bit. <laughs> a bit starstruck doesn't even begin to describe it. So the, the beauty of, of your job is not only that you get to cover all this top-class racing, but you, you dovetail with all the other output for, for BBC Radio. So you, yeah. you get to work with And some, the website as yeah, well. And the website. So yeah. you, you get to work with some renowned pros. Which broadcaster that you've worked with do you admire the most? Well, Bromley was pretty extraordinary, and John, John Hunt is... Uh, I, I think John Hunt is fantastic. 
Um, you know, on this channel, you're obviously very familiar with him calling on the yeah. race course. But he's he's a he's a he's a big personality as well, uh, and a great fun personality. And he makes it seem ridiculously easy. So he'd be a strong contender. And another, it sounds like I'm just plugging my friends here, but Mark Pugach, uh, formerly of Radio Five Live, uh, now a little bit of Radio Five Live, but mainly of ITV and BT. Mm. Uh, he's a, he's an absolute. He he on Grand National Day when we used to present when he used to present our program the Five Live Sport program on Grand National Day would be in the winners enclosure with Ginger McCain walking past having just won the Grand National uh, with uh, Amberley House with bits of paper on the floor saying right we're off to Southampton now Southampton against Brighton the latest from John Smith uh, or whoever it was so uh, it, Mark Pugat would be a pretty extraordinary broadcaster but then you go back to the days of Bromley of Dan Maskell. You know, these were the voices of a sport, weren't they? Um, I suppose Mot- John Motson as well, uh, and um, all the um, all the all the sort of huge names of yesteryear. Dan- I can't watch Wimbledon on television without hearing Man- Dan Maskell saying, "Oh goodness," or "Good, good gracious," or whatever he used to say. Uh, and as, as, as far as you're concerned, I, I know you you've done a bit of tennis for for Five Live. It, was diversifying something you really wanted to do, or were you always wanting to concentrate well, mainly on the I racing? I think you might have, if, if you heard me doing tennis on Five Live, that was the only day I ever did it, probably. <laughs> and I remember years ago doing a feature on Col- uh, Cinderford Town in West Gloucestershire, in the, being in the FA Cup. Uh, I haven't really, rather rather feebly, in terms of sport, I haven't diversified really at all. I, lo- I love other sport, I love football, uh, and I, I, football in particular is great fun. Um, but now, the th- the, I think the thing about it, if you really want, this is going to sound ridiculously pretentious, uh, but uh, if you really want to do your job as well as you can do, you, you have to absorb yourself mm. in it. So I don't think, I think if you do football, you do football. If you do rugby union, you do rugby union. If you do tennis, you do tennis. If you do racing, you definitely do racing because, and that's the extraordinary thing about this sport compared to any other, is how many days off are there a year three, is it? It's uh, so all-consuming. Yeah, uh, and, and the fact is, you could do it, on, apart from Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, is there one other? I think there might be one other day, maybe well, the day not before good Friday Christmas anymore, Eve. So. Not Good Friday anymore. You could do it every single day. So if if you love it, mm. then you can easily be uh, completely consumed by it. And also, it doesn't all have to be Cheltenham and Newbury and Doncaster. Uh, it can also be Kelso, and uh, it can also be on other days Exeter and Fontwell and Fakenham and all these other places. We'll talk about your love of some of the smaller venues in a minute. I want to ask you about the BBC and the BBC's commitment to racing. Do you, do you feel in some ways <coughs> the last few years since it's, it's left BBC television that you're, you're there bravely flying the BBC flag well, in the face of stiff resistance, or do you feel that the network still embraces the sport? Well, I, I, well the, the BBC does still um, embrace racing, uh, but it embraces in a different way. It doesn't have the opportunity to do it on television, and that 10, 15, 20 years ago was the way that people saw a network supporting or a, an organisation supporting a sport if it was on terrestrial TV on, on the BBC. So for years and years and years, everything big and small was on uh, the BBC. Uh, but the, it's changed. You know, people are consuming things in a different way. Mm. They're racing and, and things are, are moving around. So the fact is we don't do it on TV anymore, but that's uh, not, you know, that we didn't, don't have the opportunity because it's been sold elsewhere, but we still are doing it on some fairly high audience radio programmes. And in terms of the BBC website, actually, you know, what the, the traffic, I think that's a technical term, yeah. isn't it? Uh, the traffic through the BBC website is absolutely enormous. 
So whereas once upon a time, of course, you'd have wanted it to be on BBC One on a Saturday afternoon. It's not able to be there anymore. But there's plenty of other stuff uh, on the radio and, and online now. So, you know, people say to me all the time, uh, colleagues, you, you know them as well in the media, say, oh, BBC doesn't like racing and, and uh, this, that and the other. And we probably <clears throat> cut back on the coverage earlier than some other people. But if you look at the newspapers now, you know, r racing is struggling to hold its head high there. Online, it's doing OK. Things change. And uh, we were probably in the front line, of, not saying that we were innovators for a second, but we were probably in the front line of it changing. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Uh, Rafe, great to have you back on the show. I'll come to Neil in a minute. He's always got plenty so to say great. for himself. <laughs> um, great to have you back on the show. And it's been a great couple of weeks for you as well. Yeah, yeah. We've had, some, uh, we've had a bit of luck with the two-year-olds, so... That's great to do at this time of year, Nick. It's sales time as well, so it's always important to get the winners in around about this time of year. You're rounding off the season on a high. Who, who are you most excited about? Which horse are you most excited about for next year? Uh, good question there. There's a, there's a number of fillies. Dancing Vega, who won at Doncaster mm. on Friday, looks pretty smart. Manuela de Vega, who won on Monday. The Silver Tankard, I think we harbour high hopes for both of them. I thought Glance ran a very good race yesterday yes. in the... In the Radley, she's still learning her job. Uh, it's not a family who takes who, who cottons on very quickly. So I was very pleased with her. Stormwaver won a Salisbury Maiden that's been good to us in the past. I, we like him very much too. Um, Antonio de Vega sadly split a Paston in the Philippe Smile, which gives me a valid excuse for a performance at any rate. Uh, how, quick, how quick will her recovery be? Pretty quick. Yeah, we should have her back in work before Christmas. So that, that'll be fine. Uh, it doesn't need penning, thankfully. It was pretty chilly at Newbury. I suspect it was pretty chilly up at Doncaster as well, where uh, Aidan O'Brien won yet another edition of what is now the Vertin Futurity with Magna Grecia, a horse who's finished second, of course, at Newmarket prior to that, to the very exciting Persian King. And Magna Grecia will go into winter quarters amongst the market leaders for the Classics next year, Rafe. And if anyone says Aidan O'Brien has had a, a modest season by his standards... <laughs> Stand by and beware, because he's got a serious bunch of two-year-olds to, to go into the winter with. It looks like it, doesn't it? It's a similar thing happened last year. I remember uh, after Expert I won the Richmond, mm. uh, right, I had a run in the following race, and Ryan Moore was encouraging Lord Grimthorpe to send him to, over for the national states because... He didn't think there was much to come out of Ballydoyle and <laughs> but what happened, you know. And so history repeating itself, I think. You know, he's, um, yeah, it was, I, I, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see how strong a race it was, but uh, still, to win it again, some performance. There was some talk afterwards, Cornelius, that the runner-up had been a little bit unlucky, Phoenix of Spain. Lovely he got a horse, bump, isn't he? Isn't he? Absolutely magnificent mm. uh, horse. The, the, I thought the, the, the quote that came out of the whole day that was almost should strike terror into everyone else is, you know, there are a whole lot of two-year-olds said, Aidan, that we're, we're running out of time with and we're, we're not perhaps even going to get onto the race course. So, goodness, how many, how many could that turn out to be? But the runner-up, I see Charlie Hill says that he's considering appealing as far as um, uh, the, the second not getting mm. uh, the race. Um, it, it well, I, I don't know. The, the, I'm never mad about appealing from <laughs> Doncaster, but others have better experiences <laughs> uh, 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 of that. But I did just think that you know, you know, it, 
nothing against Aidan O'Brien uh, for, for one second, but it is important for the sport as a whole and in order for people to be following the sport that some of mm. the big names going to next year aren't trained by him. And obviously, John Goldston's got a couple of uh, two or three very big names as well. And if that result had been the other way round, something from a, not from the mm. usual suspects yeah. would have been, I think, a good, good for the sport. However... You know, the, the winner won well. And another success for, for Donica O'Brien was is that six group ones, I think, now this year. It, it struck me that um, we journalists have to pick a, uh, an owner of the year, a trainer of the year and a jockey of the year. Now, the owner might not be... There'd be two or three candidates. The trainer of the year, well, I think there's possibly only only really one this year in John... In, Beckett, uh, in yeah. John, John <laughs> uh, but, uh, but But in terms of jockey of the year... Donica, you can make a, a strong case for. What a great year he's had. Oshin Murphy, great mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. Sylvester D'Souza, champion jockey again. Frankie, uh, clearly. James Doyle's had an absolutely fantastic year as well. Uh, and people like Richard Kingscott, who's gone over 100 winners. Ben mm -hmm. Curtis, who's gone well over 100 winners. Those type of people. Um, Jason Watson, who's had yeah, a yeah, magnificent yeah. time as an apprentice. What a, uh, you know, uh, uh, have we got a really um, strong lot of jockeys at the moment, or haven't we? Who would be your jockey of the year, Rick? If you were voting... Uh, for Jockey of the Year, who would you vote for? If I was voting for a Jockey of the Year, I'd vote for Oshing Murphy, I mm. think. You know, just on what's happened of late and how he's really uh, improved, come of age. He'll laugh uh, to hear me say that because uh, I've had my ups and downs with Oshing, but uh, I'm still, I'm, I remain a fan and uh, I, think he's, uh, I think he's improved throughout the year. Have you, you've had your ups and downs with him? Uh, behind the scenes, Nick. You know, the odd time, you know, just inevitable. Um, I'm a, but uh, I, was, I, was always, I was always keen that Sheikh Fahad employed him mm. when uh, Andrea went to, uh, went to work for Sheikh Mohammed Obeid. I thought I was, I, was con I was pleased that they gave him the job at the time and... He's really grown into it. He's got, the, he's got that star quality, hasn't he? I remember being at Air the day that he won the Air Gold Cup for Andrew Balding. Was it Highland Calori? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think he then proceeded to win all the remaining races he on did. the card. So he had a four-timer. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, at the time, this must be, what, three or four years ago? So he must have been about 18 or 19. And I remember thinking at the time and I, I'm, uh, that, that this was something special and there was a chance that that day had been the root of something that would become mm -hmm. very special over the years. Now, you have that feeling... Not, not regularly, but every now and again, and very often that doesn't um, happen mm. to come to fruition. But I think with Oshin, it really is. And here's a guy, he's only 23, uh, and his handling of Roaring Lion has been absolutely, it, it, from the saddle. Goldston's, John Goldston's handling of the horse from, from the training point of view has been mm. unbelievable. But, but Oshin from the saddle has been really impressive as well. Big test for him next week, isn't it, Neil? Roaring Lion in the Breeders' Cup Classic. That is a huge yeah. test for someone who's barely had a ride on, on yeah, that um, surface before. I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be backing that, to be honest with you. That, it's a bet to nothing, though, for them, isn't it? Mm. He's established oh, yeah, his yeah. I mean, of course. You, I'm where, still surprised they've got to go. Yeah, yeah. But, I've got, I'm sorry, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say they shouldn't do it, but I, I think I'm not, I'm not going to be rushing to back that. He's great, though, Sheen. I, I'm a big fan. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, SDS, you kind of feel like it's kind of a given that he's just going to have a great year every year now. So I, I, I guess I wouldn't have him as... I, I am a big Jason Watson fan, but uh, 
you know, we've seen that a lot before, haven't we, with top conditionals, and then they kind of fall off a cliff. Um, Just thinking, before I get any rude letters, Jim Crowley and William Buick, I, I <laughs> mentioned them earlier on as well, so that really shows what, what, a, what a, it's a whole cricket 11 of really good yeah. riders at the moment. Trainer-wise, by the way, I, I might... I mean, I, I think you're right, John Gosden's had a great year, obviously, but you've got a Charlie Appleby as, as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. obviously Rafe as well, but... Uh, Rafe, I mean, just picking up a point that, that Cornelius made earlier, the, the powerful are getting more powerful. And I, I, I mentioned it yesterday on, on, on Racing UK. I was reading, James Willoughby will be joining us later on the phone, I was reading his column in Thoroughbred Racing Commentary this week, which pointed out that Aidan O'Brien has run mm. 110 individual horses in pattern races in the last 12 months, which is a staggering yeah, number. Yeah. And I think you have to go, you know, you could get down to about 60-odd or 56 for, for John Gosden. But it's a... The, the powerful are getting more powerful. Yeah, it's How a, much more worry is that for guys like you? I, I'm not so sure. It's a, it's, it, I, I think on a general level, you know, take me personally out of it. But, I, you know, when I, 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 I've said this to several times. When I went to Lambourne in 1996, the idea that Kim Bailey's yard mm. and Brian Meehan's yard would both be pre-training outfits 20 years later would have been an anathema. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm Bastard training probably 100 pre-training at uh, th uh, two, three miles outside Lambourne. That would have been, you know, unthought of. You know, that, that, that would just be, would be unconsidered. And I really, I think we have a real problem at the moment that the, 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 the men who train 50 to 60 and mm -hmm. even 30 horses are getting more and more squeezed and the, the, the bigger owners inevitably migrate towards the bigger trainers. But I, uh, I would have serious concerns about the way it's gone and, and how many people in the middle who are, who are very capable and training, and training winners on a regular basis are really struggling. And, you know, the bottom always struggles. That's, 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 that's always going to be the case. But the middle men... There are fewer and fewer of them, and that can't be healthy. In so my the, the, the solution is to redeploy your troops with the prize money. Like whenever, whenever I open the paper once a year and read the prize money at Royal Ascot's gone up to this and that, they don't need to do that, do they? They should stick the money, you know, at the lower well, end. About a million pounds, some major handicaps are exactly. coming worth a million pounds. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. It's, uh, the, the, million, the, the major handicaps becoming worth a million pounds is not going to feed the, the smaller battalions. No, no, it's no. going to do exactly the opposite. Exactly. Yeah, so no, so whereas once upon a time, um, uh, 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 one of Rafe's um, stables with 30, 40, 50 horses would have had a right chance in one of those major handicaps. You know, they clearly, don't your Khalid Abdullahs and your Sheikh Mohammeds and your Qatar Racings, are, if they've got a horse, are going to be targeting and them. And, so, and, you know, those handicaps are different now. You, when you're looking through them, you're not thinking, oh, let's try and find a dark horse. They, they've had to yeah. show their hand to get in the race now, you know. So the, the only exception being mm. the Cesarowicz. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when they pitched, when they pitched to have the Ebor a million pounds, it was, it was actually Hugo Palmer's idea. Uh, he brought it up in a race planning meeting. He was seconding. And they then went to York, and York came back and pitched it. And when they came, when York pitched, I said it was brilliant, but it's the wrong race. He's wishing it was a Shields Cup. Because it was a Zarroch with a safety factor of 34. Yeah. means that it is a race for every man. Yeah. And yeah, I think yeah. this year, I think the bottom weight was rated 86. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's a race for everybody. Now, it's, I, I don't disagree with the e-ball going to a million pounds. I think it's fantastic. 
and I think you know the fact that they've they've done it, it is to be applauded. And I think that whatever can keep stairs, and we're digressing, I know, but can see, keep stairs in this country um, is is good for everybody. So in that sense, I'm all for it. But um, it's not going to be a race that's ever going to be from now on is ever going to be won by Lazare or... Mary Reveley and uh, those... Yeah, yeah mm. you know, that's not going to happen anymore. And that is a, that is a big shame. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Nothing much this year or this decade is going to eclipse the achievements of Winks, who racked up her 29th consecutive victory in her fourth consecutive Cox Plate at Mooney Valley in the early hours of yesterday morning. There was an awful lot of hoopla and hype and woodbend battle served up to her. And has she beaten anything? The usual preamble to a Winks appearance, but she dismissed that with consummate ease once again. But it was a smaller field, and Hugh Bowman rode her a little bit closer to the pace. Remarkably redoubtable, remarkably durable. She's a she's a really important racehorse for the age and for the ages, uh, Rafe, isn't she? Absolutely. You know, I think uh, I think it's fantastic to keep a sound and healthy mind and limb till step, till seven. That's an achievement in itself. Um, and I think uh, he's he's you know she's danced every dance, and uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, Cornelius, how how much do you think this genuinely resonated? worldwide well the resonation within Australia was astonishing wasn't it and I think British racing would give its right arm to know what the formula is that you can that you can really get a headline act like Winks like Black Caviar uh, in the past Black Caviar I suppose some will say made a bigger impression because she came to Royal Ascot on, on people here yeah. on, on, on people here and Winks you know if you were talking to the, the more casual racing enthusiast here would they know that much about Winks I think to start with perhaps not but now uh, 29 wins and it's the, the manner uh, you know d- horses have different uh, striking manners in which they're victorious uh, some because they win by miles uh, they storm to, storm to victory but this is the, the, not such a good example today but previously such a good example of being held up to swoop on your, your opponents and, and just leave them hanging out to dry and this, for me, was the most impressive part of the race. She wheeled the field wide, and Rostropovich and Ben Battle were really um, two good horses. She got them in, in real trouble. Ben Battle tries to have another go, but in the end, she puts him away quite comfortably, as she has done all her opponents for the last few years. Consecutive win number 29 for Winks, yet another at the top level, a record breaking fourth Cox Plate. And co-owner Debbie Kapitas joins us on the line now. Debbie, uh, good morning from all of us here in London. Good morning. How are you over there? We're on cloud nine here in Australia. (laughs) I'm glad you're on cloud nine. I cannot simply imagine what it is like to be involved with the phenomenon that is Winx. Try and give us a flavour of of Winx fever this week in in the lead up to the plate and indeed through the race itself and and, and the post-race celebrations. Oh, look, it's just been unbelievable. Um, I've been spoken to from all corners. Um, this week, uh, Peter, the other, co- uh, other owner in the horse, um, and Richard, we've been approached by all sorts of media, all sorts of people, talking about this beautiful mare of ours. Um, she just astounds everybody. And we had a few people over here from the UK, 
uh, one certain person, Matt Chapman, <laughs> that um, made his thoughts known of how she's only been beating handicappers and, you know, she wouldn't just wouldn't race in England. But, um, you know, like, we have got a great jurisdiction of racing here. We have very competitive horses. Yes, unfortunately, we felt that at seven, she wasn't of the age that we were prepared to travel her. Um, and that's a shame because it would have been lovely to showcase it as a world. But it's hard to travel animals like that. Um, and she is very special to us, us. And we wanted to make sure that, that she would continue racing. And um, so we decided not to go to Royal Ascot and to pick her if she got there in the Cox Plate. And yesterday was an amazing, amazing ride. As you were describing, she just sidled up in her race beside the Ben Battle. She was three wide, but you could see how calm Hugh Bowman, our amazing jockey, was on riding her. And then he gave her the click, come on, darling, let's get going. And she actually just kept, she did. She took off, but she didn't flatten out. She only did what she needed to do. After the race, once she pulled up well, she couldn't have blown a candle out, which is a point if she hasn't actually extended herself fully. So imagine what she would have done if she had been extended. I think one of the joys of Winx for, for us is, is that we can see a race relatively often, Debbie. And it got me to thinking, are we too risk-averse and cautious in the Northern Hemisphere? Should we race our horses a, a little bit more? Do, do, do you have a view on that? Look, um, I really, I, I wouldn't like to, to go too far with how you race in the UK because I'm not a, an aficionado on it. Um, so I find it a wrong comment. But here in Australia, we race our horses oh, probably a lot to what you do, but she hasn't been overweight. We Chris has been very... Chris Waller, the trainer, has been very careful and made wonderful plans to make the strengths of her continue. And that has been his management. So each prep, she would have four, at the maximum, five runs. Now, that's not a lot for here in Australia, but that's kept her going for a lot of years. Um, and that's the secret, I feel, to why she's still racing. But look, the secret to her why she succeeds is she has a turn of foot that she can sustain for a lot longer than most other animals. Her Turnbull race, which was the race previous to this last Cox Plate, she was actually doing sprinters times in the last 600. Now, that is amazing. Yes, she's had to race to get to that those speeds, but she has sustained them. Uh, how much more significant do you think this victory was because of the presence of a European horse of genuine Group 1 calibre? Did that make it more special for you? Look, it, it did and it didn't. It made it more special because we felt that the overseas um, industry and jurisdictions would take us more seriously because of it. But we have been racing against good horses the whole time and they have stretched her. And you, you, you've seen, in, if you've watched any of her previous races, everyone has tried. They have done a plan to try and beat her. 
we'll rate her differently and get her out of the comfort zone and, and see if we can bring her undone. And this amazing mare has just managed to pull it out each time. She had a front runner in red excitement that took off eight lengths in front. You're saying that's like a, a, you, you race in England and they just pull over and let the others go past. No, it's for sustain that. But Winks came from behind and got past him and truly kept going. Then you had a time where she missed the start by four lengths and it was mathematically almost impossible for her to get there. She proved mathematics wrong and proved that you could get there. And she's done that in various ways in various races. I won't like to bore you with that. Yesterday was... You're not boring us, Debbie, I can tell you. (laughs) Was a a super sign um, of what you can do. She's competed in this wait-for-age race, pinnacle race, and, and she's done it four times. The first year she won it at the fastest speed. She broke the track record. The second year she she won by eight lengths. The next year she beat the, her world record her record again, and this year she beat overseas horses. So um, it's very hard to not think that she is fantastic. <laughs> Well, we echo those sentiments. She certainly is fantastic. Nobody could argue with that. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, what does the future hold? Where, what do you anticipate the programme for Winks being between now and 12 months' time? Well, to be honest, we're not quite sure at the moment. She'll have a spell and she can let us know how she's feeling. She's pretty clever, as, as you could tell by the way she races. Um, in her previous spells, she's gone out within a couple of weeks she's getting bored in the in the paddock she wants to do something so she goes into training and and she enjoys that she loves being ridden she wants to do fast time so i'm sure she'll indicate that to us and chris waller who's managed her so well he knows her and the staff Ormit, her regular strapper ben her regular rider candace her, her regular groomer and Hugh Bowman, the jockey, mm. they will all sense if she's not up to racing. But if they think she is, the prep will start and we'll just go from there. Race by race. Easy. What do you, what do you, Debbie Capitas, want to do? I mean, do you, do you want to go on racing if she tells you she can still race? Or is there a part of you that thinks, do you know what? I'd like to call it a day there. Uh, it's a 50-50. A bit of both. Um, I think she's done enough, um, but if she, I would find she may get bored. We don't actually start breeding until um, August, next September next year. So to me, if she wants to do a bit more work, I'd be happy for her to do work and, and see what happens, and then she can go out to the paddock and get ready. And do you have a stallion in mind for her? Oh, golly, no. <laughs> Come on, Debbie. Fine. How do you decide now? You have to see what's on the market. (laughs) (laughs) We have have the three owners. We'll get together. We've got a a few different experts that we'll ask and um, we'll mull it over and probably come up with something really diverse and go there. Would you you ship her? Would you ship her to the Northern Hemisphere to cover? Oh, look, absolutely not against that. In Southern Hemisphere time frame, 
because we would really like to bring the progeny back here. Um, but yes, look, that's open. We're open to those sort of things. So you'd bring her There's up. There's always Frankel. There's always Deep Impact. There's G- always others. So Galileo. You, yeah. So they're, they're all they're all in the mix. Those top stallions would all be in the mix for her. Oh, look, you'd have to consider those. Um, when you've got a high opinion of a horse, you've got to go to the best. Yeah. But look, I'm no breeding expert. I want to get people that can look at the crosses, see what they think, um, and and we make a decision together. It's not me. It's there's three very competent owners, and we all get on really well. We'll fight a little bit over what we want it in, in, in for ourselves, but um, we come to a united decision, and uh, we'll see what happens. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. James Willoughby, I'm sure, has a view on her performance. He joins us for his weekly um, weekly look at uh, what's been happening in the racing world. James, morning. Yeah, I've left my rating for Winks the same, but moved Chip Matt Chapman's up by a stone. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, let me, let's get, let get quickly get to business. Time is close. So the, the Vertem Futurity, as it's now called, is the landmark race. It's the last major two-year-old race in Britain. Uh, of the particular crop and it's a good time to take stock of what we've seen and in 2018 that's significant because I'll talk about how we define the quality of two-year-olds in a second but the leading two-year-olds are a vintage collection of horses and their ability expressed on the race course already and the promise of more to come promised a lot for 2019 which is very good for the game because people tend to define um, how much they enjoy uh, a, a crop of horses by the leading members now, when we look at the rating of the, the 10 best two-year-old racers run in Britain so far, which I have tabulated, we'll come to in a second, we'll see the pattern that I described. And I want to here describe those ratings. So look under that BHA. Those are the official performance yeah. figures in those races of uh, the winner of each races. And next to it in the column is the 10-year mean. And mean is an appropriate measure here. Um, and you can see, look at every one on the top 10 is in excess of the 10-year mean. Now, there is a very important fundamental reason for this. Handicapping is not a matter of opinion, as the media tend to keep saying erroneously. It has its own calculus, has its own formal set rules of computation. It's the job of the handicapper, as many people think, to calculate the set of ratings, which not just describes the, uh, the results in the database, but sort of captures the relative merits of the horses in trading using those results. Now, what's significant is, in the case of two-year-olds, we've got sparse information. Many times the handicapper has to rate horse, a bunch of horses who are either unraced or lightly raced, and we don't like to... Uh, we've obviously got a lot of uncertainty over that. So what we use is landmark figures called standards, which, in effect, is what is in the 10-year mean column there. You could think of that as a de facto standard for the quality of the winning performance. But when we rate horses, it's not just winners that we care about. We care about every horse in every race when setting that set of figures which best explains what's gone on. So why are all these races above standard? Well, we could probably tell that anyway from the winning distances, if not the winning distances, the distances back to the third. But if we didn't rate these races above their 10-year means, of course, when you rate a winner, you also set ratings using a scale of distance for weight for every horse behind in each race. And if we had these races coming out as average, 
it would mean that the standard of all two-year-olds behind these horses is lower than the historical average. We'd be rating the entire crop, assuming that a crop of hundreds of horses somehow in 2018 was less in terms of quality than previously before. So the mechanics of handicapping, the calculus of handicapping, leads us to this quantification that's independent of what anyone says about the horses, whether John Gardner says too darn hot is the best horse he's ever trained or not. These, these, this is a measurement. It's not just numbers that are plucked out of midair. Now, the median rating of all two-year-olds in training in 2018 at the moment is the same as 2017 as well. And it's the same or close to the same as previous years. And the median of all the horses that were beaten by this set of horses is the same. And so that's the way that we build up a handicap, by the sort of ripple effect. We set numbers which both best explain the results in the database and hopefully at the same time capture the relative merits of all horses in the race that we're rating. And so at the top of the handicap, and that's what people mean when they say they talk about the quality of the crop, they talk about the leading members of that crop. The, the crop are outstanding by historical standards. Now, some of these ratings will change as, the, as more results come into the database at the end of the year. We, we had yesterday the Criterium de San Clou over 10 furlongs. We've got the 7 furlong Criterium, Criterium International today as well, and they'll have a ripple effect uh, on the ratings. But so far, Lucky, they're a vintage collection of horses that have won the best races. A couple of observations, James, and we can't stop long, but there is not a single Galileo on that list. And no, that, I, I don't want to get into that anymore for fear of persecution. But two, point, <laughs> two things I think the racing post, the old racing post trophy, the Alberta and Futurity, did tell us. First of all, two horses that had their form boosted. Persian King. Of course, his form was directly boosted by Magna Grecia. They finished clear, so that makes us think that that's a very solid race. But the best of all, Kevin Prendergast Mad Moon, who presumably was missing from yesterday's race at Doncaster yeah. on account of the ground. Well, he beat Broom, Massaf, Western Australia... Sydney Opera House, all of those horses are likely to be rated above 110 or around about 110 by the end of the season. So that race looks outstanding in terms of collateral form, what the horses have got them to do. And my last point before I go is I have a tip for the future. Oh, yes. Australia. Now, what I love about some stallions is when they don't have a horse who everybody talks about. And so, in fact, like sort of like... um, uh, we've seen with certain stallions in the past, they've got talked up because they've had a, one brilliant horse everybody tried to then replicate. Yeah. Australia hasn't had a headliner. His best winner is the Group 2 Calvados winner at Deauville. But Broom, beyond reason, beyond reason Sydney, uh, Western Australia was third to Magna Grecia yesterday, and Sydney Opera House, who was beating a neck in the Criterion de San Clou, he's got only 43 horses on the ground, and four of them are rated in excess of 108. Now, that is very statistically significant it suggests that the son of Galileo and Ouija board, if he gets the chances in the years to come, and I think at the moment he only stands for €35,000 at Coolmore. So he is, I, I would say, extremely promising. But of course, only the future will tell us whether it gets the mayors to bring out his talent. And the start that he's made um, bears significant comparison with his own sire, Galileo, who made a very similar start. Uh, stud. James, thank you very much indeed. Much obliged. Really enjoying the show. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. There are very few people in this era who can build up a stud from scratch, not only do that, but to regularly send out and breed Group 1 winners, both Colts 
and fillies, and to do so in a pretty short space of time as well. She was told it couldn't be done, but she did it, and she did it many times over. I'm joined in the Luck on Sunday studio by the owner-breeder Philippa Cooper of Normandy Stud. Philippa, it's great to have you, great to welcome you, and you are renowned for being not only a very successful owner-breeder, but also extremely forthright and with good, strong views on the game. You were told, weren't you, that you couldn't do it, that you shouldn't do it, that you shouldn't even bother trying? Well, it's not so much that I shouldn't do it, but I think it was just the wider racing public was sort of surprised when I started. And I've really got to say that it was Nick, my husband, Mm. who started uh, the racing career. And it really went back to when I first met him because we went out a few times. And one of the first things he said to me when we were going out was, you've got to put a bet on the Dickler and the Whitbread. And I said, what's that? What's the Whitbread? What's the Dickler? And he said, oh, it's the most fantastic horse. So I was 18 at the time, and uh, I said to my best friend, we've got to put a bet on the Dickler, and she said the same thing. And we went into a betting shop in Notting Hill, and uh, we put the bet on, and then we went off, and then we came back just after the race had finished. And uh, I said to the people in there, did the Dickler win? And and he said, no, 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 he didn't win. Um, Proud Tarquin won. It was 1974, John Oaksey. And my friend said, oh, my God, it's just ridiculous. We've done our money. Dump him. And I said, no, we can't do that. And as we were walking out, a guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, miss, there's a steward's inquiry. And blow me down, there was a steward's inquiry and the places were reversed, which wouldn't happen nowadays. And uh, we won. So, but for the Sandown <laughs> stewards, you wouldn't have married Nicholas Cooper and Normandy Stud wouldn't exist? Totally. So that's how it all started. Yeah. Uh, Amazing and equally amazing, I suppose, and a piece of neat symmetry that 25 years on from the Dickler getting awarded the race in the stewards' room, yes. um, your colours, Nic- Nicholas's colours, the, the maroon and, and, and yellow, were winning the Whitbread with, yes. with eulogy. Gosh, you worked that out really quickly, Nick. You worked very well <laughs> on your feet. Yes, it was act- actually an extraordinary coincidence. And when you look back, well, when I was, you very kindly invited me on the programme, and I was looking back over a bit of the racing. It suddenly dawned on me, 25 years. I mean, that's really spooky. How could I possibly have known we were going to win the Whitbread? And, but he knew. The morning of the race, he knew. I was actually making the bed and doing the nurse's corners, and he said, we're going to win the Whitbread. Practice your curtsy. And I said, don't be so ridiculous. Because uh, Majesty the Queen Mother was still presenting the prize. I know. Yeah. I know. 99. Yeah. Happy, happy memories. And happy memories. It was, a, it was a wonderful triumph, and you enjoyed some, some great success over jumps. But... Eulogy was killed when he went back to Sandown that autumn. And I know you found the, the attrition in national hunt racing quite hard to, hard to bear in the end. I can't believe you've got the film there. Um, I didn't want him to race again after the Whitbread. I begged them not to race him. Even though he was only an eight, eight-year-old, wasn't Did, he? Nine. It didn't matter. Nine. It didn't matter. I've got a terrible thing in life that when you get something good, it's taken away from you. And that's how my life has been framed, because of different dramatic incidents and tragedies in it. And I didn't want him to race again. I wanted him to go out on a high. Nick didn't understand that. Richard Rowe didn't understand it. And when he went... Well, he didn't go down at the railway fences, because the problem with the Mm. horse, because I knew him so well, was he wouldn't let himself fall. He had such a fear of falling that he would stop himself falling. And as he didn't fall, he broke his leg. It snapped. And... I can remember it well. I replay it in my head too many times, but we were watching in the stand and I literally took off my shoes and I ran all the way through to the railway fences, through the middle, 
And of course, they'd shot him by the time I got there. So of course, being Philippa, I had to put myself through the utmost pain. I'm not leaving him here. He's coming back to the stud. We're going to bury him. And it was all dramatic and the JCB digger plug. And my colours were buried with him. And I said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. And I said to Nick, if you want to do it, you can carry on doing it. And he did carry on doing it, but with no success. And he still has a few jumpers and he has no success. And I keep saying to him, it finished after him, but he doesn't listen, which is fine. And you did have some wonderful days, that being one of them. And, and I'm supposing finishing third in the champion hurdle being another. But you're best known now for what you've done with, with Normandy stuff. Yes. And it, it is a titanic achievement to go from zero to having homebred group one winners in, well, first of all, less than a decade, and then to do it again and again and again and again and again. So how did you apply yourself to it in the first instance? Can I just thank I'm Supposing, because there'd be no Normandy start without I'm Supposing, because I found the start because of him and Richard Rowe, because we needed somewhere to put the horse out to grass because he was an entire. Mm. So I found this old ramshackle place, Boxall and Stud. I was a school teacher at the time, and there were these mares and foals, yeah. yes. And I said to Nick, this is what I've always wanted to do. And he looked at me, and he didn't say anything. And, I, and as we walked out, I said, I'm going to buy the place. And that's basically I'm supposing, and I still have I'm supposing, who's now retired at Amring. That's brilliant. Yeah. And how old is he now? I'm supposing, well, he was born in 92, so what is he, 20? He's an old boy. Eight, 20, yes, rising 27, yeah. So that, that really started it all? That started the stud, yes, totally. And, and then you're transferring your attentions to not just, not just flat horses, but as you call them, rich men's horses. You wanted to do... <laughs> no. You, you wanted to oh, do them gosh, properly. Oh, gosh, I'd love to say it was so clever. It was just luck um, and, and, and ignorance, because what happened was I bought my first mare... Agnes mm -hmm. from Fiona and Barry, uh, Riley of Woodcote Stud. And that was literally the day I bought the stud. And it was my birthday, which was 2nd August 97. And she was in foal at the time to Machiavellian. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, rolling on a couple of years on, um, I, I'm selling her yearling at the sales. And at the time, she's carrying in utero Dolores, basically. And Dolores really started me off. And Dolores was the dam of... Duncan, Duncan Samuel, Samuel, Gretchen, Deirdre, Alexander, and there's a yearling called Leah. And at that point, did you think, I am now a serious commercial breeder, or did you still think this was a hobby? I've never been a serious commercial breeder. <laughs> but if you're, you're, you, you've, sold a, you've sold a sales topper for 2.675 oh, million two that. years ago by Dubawi, you yes. are a serious commercial breeder. Well, first of all, that money went completely into the stud because all that happens is it just hemorrhages money, which is why I had to stop. Um, yes, I think what happened originally was, um, going back to the stayers, is mm. that... I started breeding these horses that happened to stay. Now, mm. Dolores herself was a miler. Um, she was probably a, a one-and-a-half-mile horse, but because she was so keen, she was trained by Amanda Perry. She was fourth she, in the guineas, wasn't she? Well, yes, and she could nearly have won it. I mean, she was only a length fourth, and she was impeded on the rail by the Aga Khan filly, who hasn't... I've never forgotten. <laughs> it's a good job you forgive Good job you forgive No, anyway... Um, no, so basically um, Dolores and, and then the stayers. So, so that just happened. And I think it was environmental as well, because 
we were on heavy clay, mm. and that's basically why people said to me I was never going to make it, because we were on such heavy clay. So the horses were having to get through this clay in the winter, and it was just <laughs> all for the joints and everything. And I think this is why they went on soft ground, and they stayed. And what's going to be interesting now, with half my broodmare band at Coolmore and the other half at Newsels uh, Park Stud, is maybe they won't be stayers anymore. Maybe... They're going to change. So, so maybe the rearing of the horses has as much impact on their requirements as a racehorse as do their, their pedigrees. I feel so. I feel so. And how, how much pedigree research went into the, into the matings? Because what, what was the most amount of broodmares you would, you would have mated in one, in one season at your absolute peak? When I started, I had two mares. Mm. And then I built up. Nick bought Fallen Star at the sales. Um, I had Dolores, I'd bred in that year, and made perfection out of Made for the Hills, a mare I'd also bought. So I started off very slowly. Uh, so I would just be mating about three. But the irony with Dolores, how she came about was, and I really love to say how clever I was, but I certainly wasn't clever and didn't really know enough about it. Um, I sent Dolores to Coolmore mm -hmm. to be covered by, sorry, Agnes, to Coolmore to be covered by... Kalian and Christy Grassic rang me up um, a few weeks later in the morning and said, your, mare's been, your mare is ready to be covered. And I said, great. He said, the bad news is Kalian's dropped dead. And I said, oh, I'm so sad. I'm really, really sorry. And he said, don't be so ridiculous. That doesn't matter. Who's going to cover your mare? So I went, oh, my God, I don't know. Well, you've got to make the decision now because she's absolutely ready. So I went... I don't know, what shall I do? And then I suddenly remember Dane Hill, who I didn't know much about, had come back from Japan, and she was covered by Dane Hill. And then I went home and I looked at the books and I suddenly saw, oh, my God, Agnes, she's in the wings, Dane Hill, Danzig. People didn't inbreed in those days. And not I thought, to that, not to that extent. No, not at all, not at all. You didn't do Dane Hill on Sadler's Wells. And so I rang Christy up and I said... We can't, cover, we can't cover her. And he said, no, I'm really sorry, but she's already been covered. So I thought maybe she won't get involved, and she did. And then I was wondering whether I was going to have a two-headed monster the <laughs> next year, which we didn't, but she was not mm. a very good specimen, Dolores. And you look now to flee like an Abel, who is significantly inbred to Sadler's Wells. I know. And people are now suggesting she goes to Franklin, and she'd maybe be even more inbred to Sadler's Wells. Yes. Uh, you... Now... You've, you've made some brilliant points about a lot of very serious issues, but I am going to have a bit of fun with you now. <laughs> I was dreading it, this. It's fair, um, it's fair, is it not, to say that, game, that yes. you, you do like to... You like to experiment with a trainer or two. <laughs> or 12. Or 40, or 45. Well, I, mean, the, I, had a friend, last... I had a friend of mine, actually, John Needham, who's actually been trying to work it out, and we're not sure if it's actually You haven't had a horse in training with him, but you have no. had one with Beckett... Outside. Yes. Butler, not outside. <laughs> Chrisford, Kumani, Dunlop, 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 all three. You've got the trifecta of Dunlops up. Uh, Ellsworth, feature on him coming up after yes. the programme. Fanshawe Fellows, Gosden, Haggis, Hughes, King, Lanigan, Morrison, Amy Murphy, Jeremy Nazido, David O'Mara, Jamie Osborne, Amanda Perrett, Sir Michael Stout, Roger Varian, Chris Wall, and Archie Watson. Now that is a. There's that loads is a, more. Uh, that's probably only in the last few years. Right. So, what do you want in a trainer? Communication. But not communication picking up, up, up the phone. Communication maybe once a month. Um, but it's not... I know it's funny. 
and there's probably only one on that list that doesn't talk to me. Um, Who's that? I can't say. I actually can't say. Um, but it's a small industry we get on. Why do I change trainers? Okay, why would you move a, your daughter from a school? Um, what's wrong with that? Um, you may not feel that your horse is thriving there. And when I have changed trainers, it's always been for that reason. Mm -hmm. It's always a horse-related reason. It's not a personal reason. And I don't think it's a problem. I've been married to the same man for 43 years. So I, I think, you know, I do... I've managed to sort of sustain that relationship. These are professional relationships. And there are plenty of owners who move their horses... Um, and I don't, and I, it is something that I will carry on doing, and I will certainly carry on doing it this year. Um, it can be situations where you feel a race, a trainer's running a horse over the wrong distance. I know my family's really, really well. I had a horse run uh, Friday. Um, you were there. <laughs> At Newbury, I did, you did, <laughs> yes. ran over the wrong distance and I had said to the trainer all year that I don't breed six furlong horses and he's a one and a quarter mile horse and he came second last. And He's handicapped now though, isn't he? What, he's just run once. Oh, sorry, sorry, no, okay, he's not. No, he's a baby. Mm. So it was his first run and the poor jockey came back in and I was actually in the wrong place because at Newbury, um, they've moved Excuses Corner. Mm. And I was standing... <laughs> William Haggis. Corner. <laughs> well, that's the place I know very well. And William Haggis came up to me because he went, oh, you're in, standing in the wrong place, Philippa. This is for um, first, second and third and fourth, you know, if they've moved it. So as I go down there, the jockey's coming back with a trainer. And, I, and the jockey came up to me and he said that... I, I, I was really pleased with him. He went to me and it was just... And I said, really? And he said, yes, yes, I was really, really pleased with the horse. And I said, did the trainer tell you to say that to me? And the trainer was standing next to him and he, the poor jockey was traumatised that I'd said that to him. And he went, no. And I said, OK. I said, I didn't think he ran very well. And that was it. Have you fired the trainer yet? Um, I, I wouldn't say on air. <laughs> But I just feel why are we going flippant. through this exercise? You know, I'm paying £25,000 a year for the privilege. I hear you. I hear Seriously. You. I hear you. I know it's funny. I know it's funny, you told but me it's I wasn't, also I, not you, funny. You told me none of us were smiling enough, so I thought I'd no, and I'm, do you make know, a serious I'm, point I'm with a smile. I'm the first person who will send myself up, and I do think it's funny. Mm, I know. But it's also not funny because it's incredibly expensive. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.